Good morning. Hello, guys. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad you're here. Uh, take a look at the announcements. Everything on the schedule is for, for Sundays is normal today. Everything this week is normal schedule today. There's just one thing I need to run by you guys, and that is um, we're going to make some changes. Uh, a lot of people in the 9 o'clock service, uh, no, uh, the 745 service, have been uh, sort of drifting to the other services because, um, well, they're just becoming more comfortable being around people. So in a couple weeks, we're going to uh, not do the 745 service anymore. What we're going to do is uh, 9 o'clock and 1015. The 9 o'clock service, uh, this service, uh, the live stream service, we're going to cap that at 50 still. The 1015 service, we are not going to cap, but we're going to ask everybody to please continue wearing masks. And then when you get into the sanctuary, please give everybody appropriate space. And it might not be a concern for you, but just be aware, like when you sit right next to that person, right behind that person, it might be a, it might be a thing for them. And so just be aware and keep yourself spaced out in here. Um, what this means is that I'm going to ask, if I can, um, 9 o'clock people, which is you guys here, to be faithful about signing up online. And the reason why is, and maybe this is ridiculous, there are some people, some of us want that commitment, that this is going to be a certain amount of people and no more. And so out of respect for them, if we could, we've kind of gotten uh, away from signing up online and then just showing up, and my family included. So I'm certainly not judging. But uh, if we could be more faithful about that, and we'll start that in a couple weeks. I think, too, that what we're going to end up doing is going back to communion as normal, where come forward, you're going to come to the rail, make sure you're giving space to people who don't live in your house with you, and then um, go back to the seats. We'll have a closing hymn and a benediction. If you're not comfortable with that, because like, you, you know that when, when that happens, you're going to be with a bunch of people walking out of here. If that's what you want, that's great. If you're not comfortable with that, please feel free. To leave right after receiving communion, so that you're not caught up in the crowd. I think that's what we're going to do here, starting uh, March 14th, so a couple weeks. Okay. All right. Uh, everything else is normal uh, this week. That's the one big announcement I had for you. Uh, let's go ahead and stand and open in prayer, and then uh, we'll begin worship. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for loving us and for being good to us. And our default mode, God, is to. Um, to be ashamed of uh, the scandal of the cross. And this morning, I want our prayer, Father, to be that you would help us to glory in the blood of your Son, Jesus, that you would help us to find our deepest sense of honor, our deepest sense of worth, our, the, 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 the fullest weight of your glory in the scandal of your Son's death and resurrection. Uh, we can't do that on our own. We definitely need your Holy Spirit to shape and form that in our hearts. And so we're asking you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in worship in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. You are the Lord and you alone, Father. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. You have called us to yourself and given us a covenant. You have become our God and made us your people, and yet we have turned away from you. We have rebelled against you. 
You have delivered us many times according to Your covenant mercies. You have warned us, and yet we have acted presumptuously. You have sent us prophets, and we have turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened our necks and would not obey Your law. You are the Lord, and You alone. You are our God, great and mighty. You keep covenant and steadfast love. We deplore our sins before You and before each other. They have only gotten us into trouble. They have only enslaved us. They have not given us the happiness they promised. Deliver us from our sin and the power and attraction of sin through the faithful suffering and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose intercession we plead and in whose name we pray. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. Uh, Stay standing for the hymn.
when my strength is failing. The end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise blessing the Lord with Psalm 115, where uh, we'll do just that. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is from Genesis 17. Uh, let's read it now, and then we're going to read it again on Wednesday evening at the Lent service, and we can talk about it more then. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her, says the word of the Lord. Epistle reading is from Romans chapter 5, and we read this uh, last year when we were working through Romans 5 through 8. You're going to see some of the same themes that pop up in the gospel reading here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Remember for Paul in Romans 8, glory of God is code for the new creation. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Holy Gospel according to St. Mark chapter 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples. Before I start here, the, the word Christ is a Greek word that Peter's going to say here in a minute. I mean, just, some of you know this. I'm just going to, if you don't, I'm just going to shoot this out there. Christ is the Greek version of the word Messiah in Hebrew. They both mean the same thing. Jesus and his friends would have spoken a version of Hebrew called Aramaic, and they would, they would have used the word Messiah. When Mark writes this in Greek, though, he uses the Greek word Christ. So when Peter says you're the Christ, he's saying you're the Messiah. Okay. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, uh, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Okay, so I, we've actually looked at this text a couple of weeks ago. I've quoted the whole thing about you are the Christ and Jesus being, saying, don't tell anybody. Like, I've mentioned that maybe two or three times in the past month. It's really kind of, it's an inescapable Lent theme when you're reading the Gospel of Mark. Um, this is a really super important part in the Gospel of Mark. Up until now, up to, up to chapter 8, Jesus is kind of like teaching, uh, teaching about the kingdom, doing miracles, forgiving sins, and stuff like that. In Mark 8, you get to this, okay, what are you doing? Like, who are you? Or Actually, Jesus raises the question, who do you guys think I am? And he, you know, this confession from Peter, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. And then... It, he, he, Jesus immediately starts headed, heading towards the cross. Talking about the cross a lot. Uh, teaching his disciples that this is what's going to be happening. So I, we've talked about this a lot, but if I can, I want to say, uh, talk about it one more time and uh, come at it with a different angle, especially near the end of the sermon. And um, so let's look at verses 27 through 30 uh, real quickly. Here's this confession from Peter again. You know, Jesus says, who, 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 do you, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. Um. In 1901, there was a New Testament scholar in Germany named William Vreda who wrote a book called The Messianic Secret in the Gospel of Mark. And he, he went through the Gospel of Mark and he started, he found, like he discovered that there's all these times in Mark where Jesus is saying, don't tell anybody who I am. And he was like, that's kind of weird. Because like, shouldn't Jesus want everybody to know who he is? Like he's, does, shouldn't he be evangelizing the world for himself? But you find him in the first half of the, of the Gospel of Mark constantly telling people, don't tell anybody. Especially, this is like super important. You know, Peter says, you're the Messiah, and Jesus instantly says, okay, but don't tell anybody. Like cuts him off. And William Vreda said this, 
He said, it's clear to me that what happened is um, Jesus never claimed to be any sort of special person. He didn't think he was the Messiah. He didn't think he had any sort of like intimate relationship with God that, you know, that somehow transcends the normal human relationship that people can have with God. He just, like, he, he was just a wise teacher, a good man. Um, but later on, his followers, you know, after he died, his followers are like, let's try and say to everybody that he was the Messiah. And then they went back and they said, he really said this stuff. But the problem that they had, Vereda said, the problem they had was that everybody who knew Jesus would be like, no, he never said that stuff. And so the disciples said, okay, where are we going to? Okay, he said this stuff, but he told us not to tell you about it. That's what, that's what William Vereda said. Okay, uh, that seems, okay, that, that's, that, that's still pretty commonly held today. You know, Jesus, if you watch 60 Minutes or, you know, any sort of like news program around Easter when they do the obligatory who was Jesus? Did he really rise from the dead? They're all going to say this. Scholars today agree that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. And they're going to say stuff like this. Obviously, his followers wanted him to be the Messiah, and so they retrojected that back onto him. Now, two things. First of all, this isn't even like we can, we don't even really need to talk about the historical question, which is why would anybody do that? Like, what benefit would it be to his followers to retroject that back onto him? It didn't get him anything. It didn't get them power. It didn't get them elected. It didn't make them money. They didn't say like, hey, I'm a Christian. You should, you know, patronize my business. They didn't get anything from it except for they got killed. There's probably better historical reasons for what happened than they made up this story, which made no sense at the time. Nobody would believe in a dead Messiah. Second of all, though, there's actually better reasons within the story itself for why you would believe that Jesus was the Messiah but had good reasons for telling his disciples not to tell anybody about it. And the main reason is, is that they don't get what Messiah is. They don't understand who the Messiah is supposed to be. Now this is part, I'm repeat, I realize I'm repeating myself from the past couple weeks. They don't know who Messiah is. They're right that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're wrong about what they, so Peter, up until the very end, Peter assumes that the Messiah is a political military leader who's going to raise an army and kick Rome's butt. And Jesus has to tell him, you're right that I'm the Messiah, but you really don't know what the Messiah is really going to do. The Messiah is going to do, and he's going to explain it in a second. So that, that's, uh, so there's like, th th there's this a Peanuts comic strip. I, I don't remember what, who the, who the character was in here, but one of the girls in the Peanuts comic strip said to an, one of her friends, said, I think I'm thinking about dropping out of school. And her friend said to her, well, you, you can't, you can't drop out of school. You, what, what, what kind of job you're going to get? You know, you can't drop out in the third grade. And she says, well, I'll teach second grade. There's a certain sort of logic. You know, if you've if you passed second grade, you know what's in second grade, right? I mean, so you know it. But can you really teach second grade? I mean, there's a lot of, I tried to say this word in the 745 service, and I didn't. So I expect a round of applause if I nail it here. There's a lot of pedagogical, don't, don't, don't clap, but I did nail it. There's a lot of like teacher stuff that goes behind teaching. Like you're, you're teaching a trajectory. When you teach a second grader, you know, you're teaching for fifth and sixth grade too. You're trying to prepare. That's what Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's teaching second graders. They don't know anything about algebra, but he's teaching them so that when they get to algebra, they'll be, they'll be ready for it, but they have no clue, right? Peter thinks that's, this is why Jesus says, uh, verse 31, Mark says, 
right after this, he began to teach them. What, what do you mean he began to teach them? Hasn't he been teaching his disciples all along? Well, no, here he's beginning to teach them something special and different. He's taught them about the kingdom. He's taught them about God's desire to rule and reign over sin, death, and the devil. He's taught them about new creation. He's taught them that he himself is the Messiah. But now he needs to fill it with content, right? They're getting the answer right, but they don't know how to do the math that got them to the right answer. And now he's going to teach them how to do the math. So he begins to teach them uh, four things here in verse 31. First of all, the Messiah, the, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. So he's going to suffer many things. It's not the case that Jesus is going to live this powerful, successful life. And then at the end, plot twist, he gets killed. He's actually going to live a life of suffering. He's going to be a man of constant sorrow. He's never going to be successful. He's never going to have money. He's never going to have a large amount of followers. He's going to suffer many things. And on top of that, the scribes, the Pharisees, who else does he mention? The chief priest, they're going to be against him the whole time. Who are the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests? We don't really have this in our culture, but they're the religious leaders of their culture. And in that culture, they are the, they are the opinion shapers. They are the cultural elite. They're the ones who determine the way people think about stuff. The people who are shaping the culture, the people who are shaping thought, they are not on Jesus' side. Not today, not then, not ever. Jesus is never culturally relevant. Jesus is never accepted. Jesus is never, sometimes in some, some situations, the cultural elite will try and borrow bits and pieces of Jesus to use for certain projects they might have, but they're not really interested in him. They're not really interested in all of him. They're just interested in borrowing some for, you know, power's sake. You know, in all honesty, pastors are like that too. My temptation is to borrow bits and pieces of Jesus to try and control you. Don't let me do it. Like, call me to account when I do it, okay? Jesus is never, Jesus is always a loser. Second thing, he's going to get killed. I mean, this, this is the kind of Christian thing you say all the time. You know, Jesus died. I mean, it's like, you can almost say that and not think about it. But think about it from Peter's perspective. Peter's like, okay, this guy's going to raise an army. We're going to go to Jerusalem. The revolt's going to start, and we are going to drive Rome out. And Jesus says, Yes, I am the Messiah. Come, follow me. I got to tell you something. I'm going to lose. This is not going to work, guys. It's no wonder that Peter's like, what's going on here? Like, hey, come here, Jesus. That's not, you're not talking sense here. You're the Messiah. You don't get killed. You do the killing. Jesus is a loser. I, I, we, part of what I'm going to say at the end of this sermon is this, is we need to feel the weight of that, that Jesus is a loser. He's culturally irrelevant. He gets killed. And he's trying to tell, this is what he's trying to tell his disciples. We're not going to look at this in depth, but he's going to say, if you want, if you want this to work, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Like, let's go and let's get killed. Come on, guys. That's what he's saying. Like, I'm going to lose. You're going to lose. Let's go lose together. No wonder it's confusing for Peter. All right. Third thing is, is he's going to rise from the dead, though. That's the last line here. Or, uh, uh, yeah, last line in verse 31. Rise from the dead. Now, um, so what he's saying is, is I'm going to lose, and by losing, we're going to win. L let me lose, and then we'll win. And, and what the, the language he uses for that is rise from the dead. G give me a second here to explain this. Rise from the dead in the Old Testament is language for God is going to return and set everything to right and put Israel back in the land. In fact, do you guys remember the, it's, it's uh, 
the Ezekiel 37 text about the dry bones. You know, Ezekiel has this vision and he's all these skeletons. It's actually a scene after a battle and they're all bones and they're all dry because they've been dead for a long time. Like, and God breathes on them, the Spirit of God breathes on them and all these bones come back together and then flesh comes on them and they live. And Ezekiel's like, whoa, resurrection from the dead. Ezekiel explains it like this in uh, chapter 37. He says this, when this happens, God says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. When the resurrection from the dead happens, I'm going to plant you back in Israel. Now, many Jews, a lot of, you know, Peter's lot included, thought resurrection from the dead is a metaphor for when God rescues us and gets rid of the Romans or the, whoever's the pagan in charge at the moment and puts us in the land. And what Jesus is trying to convince them is like, no, it's not, that's not the metaphor. That's actually the real deal. I'm actually going to rise from the dead, and I'm going to raise you from the dead too. Now, a lot of Jews kind of had thoughts about this like on the, at the end of time, but mainly resurrection from the dead was like, Rome is beaten and we're back in the land. And Jesus is like, no, that's, I'm actually going to rise from the dead. These three things, all right? So there, I'll give you the fourth thing here in just a second. Meanwhile, Jesus is interrupted with his list of four things by Peter coming and saying to him, you no, know, we don't really know what Peter says. You know, Peter rebukes him, and it's not listed here what, what exactly in Mark what Peter says, but we can tell from the way Peter acts throughout the rest of the story and from what Jesus says in response to him right after this, starting in verse 34, 33 and 34, that one of the things that Peter is saying is this, is like, hey, no, dude, you've got power. Let's, what do you mean losing? Let's go and kick some butt. And Jesus listens to him talking for a second, and then Jesus is like, I've heard that voice somewhere before. Oh, no, I remember. Get behind me, Satan. You remember last week we, we, we talked about the temptation of uh, Jesus. J Jesus knows what Satan's voice sounds like. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like this. Hey, man, power's the name of the game. Like, you've got it. Just, like, snap your fingers and make food for yourself if you're so hungry. You've got the power. Use it. You've got all kinds of power. Like, you could, you could throw yourself down. You could try to commit suicide. And then like moments before dying, you could snap your fingers and the angels would come and rescue you. You should use that power. And if you, if you don't feel like you've got that power, like talk to me. I'm your end guy. Like all you got, you come to me, I can hook you up. I can make you the most powerful human in the world. And now Peter comes to Jesus, uh, you know, a few weeks later and says to him, hey, power, that's, that's the name of the game. And, and Jesus knows that's actually Satan talking. That's Satan talking. You know, Jesus is, of course, not trying to be... Uh, uh, mean to say, mean to Peter, but he is trying to make the point that the lust for power, the desire for power, is completely antithetical to his mission. It surprises me. Can I can I be a little heavy-handed for a second? It surprises me, like when I watch when I watch Christians interact with uh, non-believers uh, on you know social media or wherever. It surprises me, like how desperate Christians are for power, how desperate they are. Like we've got to win this election, we've got to convince people that we're right. And I, I, I totally get it. Like, we all, we all want to back a winner. That's just human nature, right? We'll talk about that more in just, in just a second. But that's actually not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom works when Jesus loses. The power of the gospel is unleashed when the Son of God dies. Paul's very clear in 2 Corinthians, all kinds of texts, Philippians, that the power of the crucifixion of Jesus is unleashed when the Christian church suffers, and yet we're determined not to suffer. No, God, we don't want to suffer. we got to win this thing. we got to prove to everybody that we're right. We want to be culturally relevant again. We like it when we're in charge. Now, actually, Christianity works when Christians aren't in charge. Christianity works when Christians in the name of Jesus are beaten down. 
And Peter's got to learn this because until he does, he's actually speaking the voice of Satan, not the voice of God. Okay, fourth thing. Jesus comes back to him and he comes and he, and he, he says, actually, let me, let me tell you, Peter, how this is going to have to go down. You're wrong. I am going to suffer. You're also wrong because you're going to suffer too. If anybody wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And then there's this big section in 34 through 38. There's so much in there. Like, go read 34 through 38 on your own. We don't have time to do all that, of course. Uh, 38, can we sit on verse 38 for a few minutes and kind of think about what is Jesus calling us? You know, he's calling Peter to be a certain way. He's calling the disciples in the crowd. We're a part of the crowd, of course, 2,000 years later. What is Jesus in verse 38 calling us to be and to do as his followers? And the way he says it is this. Let me read it one more time. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Okay, major guilt trip that feels like to me. I've always read that as kind of like, you better be a good believer in me, or when the last day comes, you're toast. You better, you better be proud of me. And I've always kind of read that as like, Jesus kind of like at the end of his speech there, kind of laying it on thick. Let me, let me tell you guys, if you're not on board with this, you're done at the end. And actually, I, I don't think that that's the case. I mean, it's very serious what he's saying. It is very final in a certain sort of sense. But he's not trying to lay guilt on. And I'll tell you why. It's because what he's dealing with here in verse 38 is shame. For if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you on the last day. And there's a difference in the way that we talk and a difference in the way the Bible talks between shame and guilt. There's a difference between shame and guilt. Now, there's a fantastic book that I would recommend to you by a philosopher, a Christian philosopher named Dick Kyes. It's called Beyond Identity, where he deals with some of these themes. And in there he says this, guilt, guilt is what you experience when you fail to meet a moral standard. Right? God says, don't steal. And then I steal something, and what I get from that is guilt. Now, sometimes I'll have guilt feelings about that. I'll feel guilty. Sometimes I'll steal and I don't feel guilty, but in both cases, I actually have legal guilt. I did the stealing and I'm a stealer, and that's, that's what guilt is, right? Shame, though, Kai says, comes when we don't meet the standard of the heroic. Let me say that again. Put that all together. Guilt is what you experience when you don't meet a moral standard. Shame is what you experience when you don't meet a, what he calls a heroic standard. I'll explain what that means. A heroic standard is... We all have heroes. Now, frequently the heroes, I'm not talking about Superman, although, I mean, you might like Superman, I'm not saying you don't, but uh, these heroes are somebody that you have in your mind who is you, but perfect, right? Kai says it this way, I'll give you a quote from him. Your model, your hero, your model self is an ideal self-portrait. It's a portrait of yourself with no warts, right? So I'll just tell you, I have, my model is, like, I'm really attractive. By the way, your models, you don't, meet, you don't match up with your models, and then comes shame. I'm really attractive. I'm really funny. I'm really smart. Like, I'm really good at basketball. These are all these things in my mind. Like, whenever I tell a joke, like, people crack up. Whenever I say something intelligent, people are like, whoa, that guy's smart. Whenever I say, Harry, come here, I got something for you to do. He always trots along real willingly. Right. Whenever I have a shot at the end of the game, I always nail the three-pointer. In my mind, I have this heroic ideal. Now, when you don't match up with that heroic ideal, 
you get shame. That might, there might be some overlap with guilt. Like if, if, if you guys find out that I've been stealing money from the church or something, I would have both guilt and hopefully, Lord willing, guilt feelings, and also shame at being the kind of person who would steal money from other people, right? So, but frequently there's, not over, there's nothing wrong with missing the layup at the end of the game and you lose. There's nothing morally wrong with that, but it does violate my ideal self-standard. It, it does violate the perfect Aaron Miller that I would love to be in my mind. And then when I'm not, I'm kind of ashamed when people see that or when, when even I see that. We've all experienced this in different, you know, in different ways. There's all, all of us at different times are ashamed of how we look, right? We're wearing the wrong kind of clothes or we're too fat or we're too skinny or we're too tall or we're too short or, you know, my nose isn't perfectly symmetrical or my ears are too big or I have the wrong skin color or my, my teeth aren't very straight. These sorts of things where we're like, ah, oh, I wish that was different about me. When I'm around somebody who doesn't have those things, I feel like less, Less than. I feel shame. All of us know what it's like to say something funny and nobody laugh, or to say something serious and somebody laugh. We all, we all know what it's like to love somebody and that love not get returned. It's, you know, it's painful in a sort of shameful way. You've been left out there vulnerable and hanging. We all know what it's like to be ashamed of being poor. I, I wish that they couldn't see the inside of my house, or I hope they don't drive through my neighborhood and know that's my house. We all know... Sometimes within minutes apart, the shame of being rich. Like, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed because I feel like I'm flaunting it a little bit, you know, the clothes I'm wearing or the car I'm driving. We all know this, like, we're not meeting this ideal standard of who we're supposed to be. And now, come back to what Jesus says. He's, he's not laying guilt on us. That's not his point. He's talking to us, not about guilt, like you're doing something wrong if you're not following me. He's talking about shame. All of us have an ideal in our mind. And all the, the ideals of me, and hopefully I connected with some of yours that I just described, all have to do with winning, whatever that means in our culture, hitting the, hitting the three-point shot, being funny. They all have to do with success and winning. And when Jesus says, I want you to not be ashamed of me, it comes right on the tail end of his description of himself as a loser. And now here's what, here's what he's saying. He's not, it's not guilt. He's saying, if you follow me, you're going to have to glory in a loser. You're going to have to take pride in the fact that you're on the losing team. The culture's going to be against you. Your friends are going to be against you. You know, whatever. You fill in the blank. You're not going to be successful. You're going to talk to people about the cross of Jesus, and they're going to be like, I'm not sure if that's more stupid than it is weak, but either way, it's kind of dumb what you're saying. That's the response you're going to get. And you're going to have to find your glory in that. The opposite of shame in the Bible is glory, by the way. Hosea 6 says, God's talking to Israel, and he says, someday I'm going to turn their shame into glory. Shame gets turned into glory by God. Jesus is saying, this is, you follow me, it's a life of shame, but you find your glory in being a loser. And now if you're, if you, if you're being honest with yourself, and I'm, like, I'm trying to be honest with myself here, it's not, can you do that? I can't, I can't even go out of my house with bad hair and not be ashamed of myself, let alone do what Jesus is saying. Like back the biggest loser, he, he, he claims to be God and then he gets killed. Like how much big of a fiasco, that's the biggest fiasco in the history of humankind, right? I can't even like, so I'm supposed to lose the case and walk out and I, I can't even do that. I can't. I can't even like fail a pop quiz 
and then walk out of the classroom and be like, I'm good to go. I can't even do that, let alone this. Well, here, here's what Jesus is saying, and the, here's what the gospel is about. Jesus is saying, yes, I know that. I'm going to be the shameful one for you. I'm going to experience the shame so that you don't have to. Here's what, here's, what, here's what Hebrews chapter 12 says. What we need to do, what you and I need to do, is to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, the shame of being crucified. Jesus looked at it and thought, I don't care. I'm all in. I'm doing this. Why did he do it? So that he could be the author and finisher of our faith. Why did Jesus allow himself to be hung up naked in the air so everybody could watch him die naked? So that you and I could be completely clothed in his righteousness. Why did he go through the shame of allowing himself to be beat up and not retaliating? So that you and I could have our wounds healed. Why did he go through the shame of being abandoned by all of his friends? So that you and I could never, would never ever know loneliness would never ever have somebody who we truly belong to was passionately into us. And on top of that, built into that, belonging to Jesus, is this community here. Jesus did all this. He experienced all this shame on the cross so that you and I could get the glory of the resurrection. That's what he's calling us to in, in 834 is. He's not saying, you better, you, you better toe the line. He's saying, I'm offering you the glory of the resurrection if you will embrace my shame the shame of following me, the shame of backing a loser who ends up, of course, being the biggest winner in the universe. Okay, how do you do this, though? Like, how do you, how do you fail the test and walk out of the classroom being like, I'm good with myself? Well, really the only way to do it is just to be with Jesus. There's a certain type of person, some of you are this person, by the way, right now, who, uh, you know, in their 20s, they're like, man, I don't want no kids. I don't want to get married. I don't want kids. You, you look, you know, you're looking ahead at the people who like have the minivan, and you're like, no way, no way. I can't imagine myself walking into Target, toting a diaper bag. No way. I can't imagine myself spending my free time at the playground, talking to another dowdy mom about what we're making for dinner that night. I can't imagine that. That's real loser material. Those same people are the same people who, in 15 years, will be like, hey, check out these pictures of my kid i got to show you this video of my kid getting a hit or Susie at the viola concert. How did they go from like, that ain't cool, and that's not going to be me, to like, I know you're super annoyed with the fact that my kids are on my phone here and I'm going to shove this in your face, but I'm doing it anyway. How do they go from one version of shame to a completely different version of shame? Well, the answer is that they had kids. Like you, can, you, you know, you, for those of you who don't have kids, like you think it's, you think it's like a mess? Well, yeah. You think it's like oppressive and you think it's like a burden and you think it's going to be miserable. Oh, you're probably right to some extent, but it will be the most fun, the most glorious thing you ever do. And you can never find that out until you have kids. You can't borrow your friend's kids. That will actually, in my, in my experience, confirm that you shouldn't have kids, hanging out with your friend's kids. But when you have kids, you'll get it, right? So what do you have to, you have to once you have kids, it completely changes your definition of shame. So near the, end, near the beginning of uh, The Lord of the Rings, uh, the hobbits in the fellowship meet this guy named Strider, and he's not, they don't like him. He's creepy, he's dirty, he's a wonder, he doesn't have a home, he's kind of uh, sneaky, and they have friends who are telling him, stay away from that guy, that guy's bad news. And, and, and they are, they're like, why? But the problem is that he keeps following them. Right? And so they're like, I wish he would go away. 
You know, I don't, we don't want him around us. Like, get him away from us. They're scared of him. They're ashamed of him. Over the course of the stories, though, he becomes their best friend. He actually becomes the guy who rescues them from a bunch of situations. And they, they, they come to see him as indispensable. How do they move from the shame of we don't want him around us to we can't live without him around us? It's the exact same way that you're going to come to the place where you realize, like, it's embarrassing to be a Christian. It's embarrassing to always be on the, the butt end of the cultural's you know, of our culture's jokes, of our culture's vision of whatever's wrong with the world. It's always embarrassing. How do you move from that to being like, I will glory in the cross? How do you move from that to Romans 1.16? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the, that's a crazy thing for Paul to say. I'm not ashamed of that dead construction worker because it's the power of God for salvation. How do you move that? And the answer is you've got to be around Jesus. You've got to be around Jesus. You've got to be feeding on his word. You've got to be with his people. You've got to be in community. You've got to be receiving the sacrament in faith. You've got to be talking to people about the Bible. You've got to be in mercy ministries, experiencing what it's like to meet Jesus face-to-face in mercy ministries. You just have to be around Jesus. Can I invite you guys to do that? Like to sort of commit to that? Not as a work, but as a way to learn that the Jesus who's incredibly shameful, the loser Jesus, is actually the biggest winner in the universe. Let me invite you guys to do that. Stand with me, and we'll pray and have communion. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being such a good God and for loving us. And we thank you for this vision of glory that you've given us. Paul talks about it in Romans uh, chapter 8, the new creation that you are creating. And God, how on the path of that new creation, like we can actually embrace sufferings because sufferings lead to endurance and endurance to hope. And hope doesn't make ashamed. The su- sharing the suffering of your son, Jesus, God, we confess. We don't always know how this works. But we confess along with Paul in Romans 5 that sharing in the suffering of your son, Jesus, will not lead to shame, but will lead to the hope of glory, will lead to the hope of the new creation which he's bringing about. Help us to live in that endurance, the endurance of suffering, the endurance of hope, the endurance of no shame. Lord, in your mercy. God, we praise you for uh, the uh, promises that you've made to Abraham, which like we read these so much, these covenant promises to Abraham, and God, there's so much at the center of the promises that you've made to us, that through your offspring, our world will be blessed, that through your offspring, Glen Carbon, Illinois is going to get fixed. God, help us to live in light of these promises. You know that we're weak and that I fail so much as a Christian and that our church fails so much as a body of believers. God, we want to see you do something powerful here in Glen Carbon. We want to, we want to see you do an incredibly mighty work to keep your promises to Abraham to bring blessing to Glen Carbon in the name of Jesus. And so we're asking you to do it, and we're asking you to please, please, God, for your name's sake, please let us be a part of it. We want, we want to taste your glory. We want to be a part of you working here too. Lord, in your mercy. Father, uh, we pray this morning for everybody who's struggling and suffering and uh, the people who are, uh, have physical issues who we pray for all the time. God, please just give them comfort physical comfort, but also emotional comfort, knowing that you're in charge and that, oh, this is easy for me to pray since I'm not going through it, so God forgive me, but that suffering works hope and, and, and patience and endurance and hope of glory. God, please, when, when all of us go through whatever suffering we're going through, you know, whether it's physical or psychological or emotional or financial or social, like God, help us to embrace this 
that we do not suffer alone, but we suffer with your son Jesus on the cross, and so we do have hope. Lord, in your mercy. God, we can only pray these things because you've invited us into your throne room as your children in the blood of your son Jesus Christ. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit and in his precious name we pray, amen. Let's confess our faith now with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he himself taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Just that.